Cafe. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Thank you guys for helping us to sing to the Lord this morning. We're so grateful for you guys and for uh, the work that you do to help us in this regard. And Diane and I thank you for um, the celebration last Lord's Day of 25 years here. So I guess that this means today is day one of the next 25. So uh, who said, oh, you know, who, who, who is groaning over that one? I'm, I'm taking names here, but <laughs> all right, I'd be 85, uh, but we'll see. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, while we're going to look just at verse 7, we want to begin at verse 1 and read down through verse 7, for these are God's words for us this morning. And here's what God says. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption uh, that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly kindness, and brotherly uh, affection uh, with love. You may be seated. Thank you, Father, for your word. There's no word like your word. And so our prayer is that now, by your Spirit that you would stir in our hearts, open our eyes, and that you would transform us into the very things that you describe here. Help us to behold wonderful things. May you be pleased by how we worship you now through your word, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've take, we're taking 11 weeks this summer. This is the ninth of the 11 weeks, and we're looking at 11 verses from 2 Peter chapter 1. And in particular, we're taking seven of those 11 weeks to look at verses 5, 6, and 7. We are looking at the, these character traits uh, that we are to cultivate in our lives. And we are now on the seventh of the seven Uh, seventh trait that we are to cultivate. What Peter is telling us is this, all who belong to Jesus, all who through faith in Jesus, which was explained in verses 1 and 2, who've now been given the very divine enablement of the presence of God himself, verses 3 and 4, we must make every effort to cultivate or 
to add to our faith or to supplement our faith with these traits, the traits of virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. So this morning, we look at this seventh trait. We want to do so by just two broad points. We want to, first of all, spend most of our time considering this trait of love, this virtue of love that we are to cultivate in our hearts and lives. And, and then we'll spend uh, the closing moments of our time actually looking at how do we cultivate this sort of love in our lives. Well, so here we are. We're at the seventh trait listed here. Um, he started with faith. Make every effort to add to your faith. And, and, and he culminates with, with love. We st- he started with the, the foundational element. The, the foundation of our experience with God is we turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We depend upon him. We, we live in a relationship. We turn to Christ because of what he has done for us on the cross. He has died for our sins. God raised him from the dead. And we turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and yet that faith culminates. The kind of faith that, that, in, it, that indicates a genuine, true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ culminates in an expression of love. Now, last week uh, we looked at the notion of brotherly affection or brotherly kindness or even uh, brotherly love. Uh, and, and now this week uh, we consider love uh, in, a, in a more broad sense. Um, it, it, last week we noted that brotherly affection is not something altogether different than love. It's not a different species uh, in, in, in every way, um, uh, it, it, and in fact, brotherly affection is a is a, 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 a an overlapping category with love. Uh, it, it, in other words, brotherly affection is is not something other than love. It, it's it's not a it, it's it's not a different shape of something other than love. But brotherly affection is love of a different sphere. Brotherly affection is love of kin, love of your, of your people. It, it originally, remember, it was a, it's a family word. It's a, kind of, it's a kind of love and kindness and affection that you would display to your, your family, to, to your, your kin. Um, and, um, but, 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 but now how this term love builds upon that is we're not talking about the sphere of family. We're, we're talking about love expressed toward not your kin. Love expressed toward, if you would, um, outsiders, so to speak. Um, and, and, and so as we consider this quality, this virtue of love, um, uh, where, where, do we, where do we look uh, to, to, to find what we're talking about? This is huge because our culture loves the word love. Our culture uses the word love all the time. And, and so we would be apt to think, well, I'll just look to the culture. I mean, after all, they seem to love this word, and, and they're using it all the time. And so maybe they could teach us a thing or two about love. And, and that would be a 
a really disastrous starting point for while, our, while, while our culture loves to use the word love, they have altogether different conceptions of what we're talking about. No, when, when we want to consider love as the scriptures describe it, then we, we must, it must drive us to consider God's love. We must be informed by how it is that God loves, who or what it is that, that God loves. See, we, we have a, a, a danger here, not just in the subject matter of love, but in so many other subject matters of, as well. We have a danger of projecting back to God how we think uh, love should be described and defined. Uh, we, 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 we sometimes are tempted to to think of God merely as a, a bit larger version of us. That we, if we're not careful, we create God in our own image. Just a bigger ver- version of, of our image. And God is not merely a bigger, larger version of us. He is an altogether different kind of being. And so the shape of how God loves and what God loves and who God loves is is different than maybe what we would capture if we were just to look at the culture and come up with some descriptions and definitions of love based upon the culture. Three things I want us to consider about how God's love is different than uh, cultural conceptions of love. First of all, God's love is not based upon attraction. I'm going to say some more about that in a second, but let me go ahead and list the other two. Second, God's love is not rooted in his own personal need. And then third, God's love is not oriented by variables. It's not hit or miss. So first, first, um, the first way that God's love is not what maybe our culture would commonly associate with love is that God's love is not based on attraction. It's based on commitment. Uh, this thing that you and I culturally call love <laughs> has huge amounts of attraction uh, that dilutes it. In other words, we choose to, quote-unquote, do the love thing uh, with that which we deem as attractive to us. In other words, that which we assess to be lovely or desirable to us. Thus, when we think of the notion of of, of how God loves, um, and we think of the notion that God loves us, we are apt to wrongly conclude from that, well, God loves us, and if, we, if our category of love is based upon attraction, then our conclusion is that we must be incredibly, natively lovely. God loves me? Well, of course he does. What's, look at this. What's not to love? Why are you guys laughing at that? 
In other words, if, if we take how, how we commonly culturally do love and we transpose that upon God, we be, begin to grossly distort notions of, of the true uh, beauty of, of God's love. And, and so uh, when we think of God loving us, and after all, we're so lovely, I, I mean, do you see how... We, we begin, it becomes almost idolatrous because um, we, we, we love the fact that God loves us, not because God loving us is a wonderful statement about Him, about the quality and brilliance of His love, but we distort it and flip it on its head, and we love the fact that God loves us because we somehow have figured out a way to extract from that that that's a, a a statement, an affirmation of the quality and the brilliance of our loveliness. See the distortions? As, we, as some of us were reading even this week in our, our read-through-the-Bible approach for this year, and as we were in Deuteronomy 8 and 9, and Moses brings up the subject of why did God love Israel? And he says, it's not because you were the greatest nation. It's not because you were the, the, a, a, a superior nation. He says, I, I loved you because I love you. He said, I, I love you not because of your loveliness. I, I love you because that's who I am. That's what I do. I do love. I do love well. I do love that is internal to me. Or he would, or Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God chose, chose to love is really what the implication is, that God chose not to, to love the powerful and the noble and the strong, but... You ready for this? God chooses to love the lowly and the despised and the weak. He chooses to love that which is not altogether lovely. He doesn't do love based upon uh, the whole notion of attraction. He chooses to do love based upon what is stirring inside of his own heart of love. See, what's the difference? If, if we get God's love wrong, if we first of all base God's love on the notion of attraction like we do in our culture, that leads us to esteem ourselves over esteeming the Lord. I mean, who gets worshipped here? If we're not careful, we end up worshipping ourselves. We go, I'm lovely, I'm lovely, I'm lovely, I'm lovely, I'm lovely. Oh, and there's God too, but I'm lovely, I'm lovely. Whereas we say, this is so amazing that, that God loves us. Now, tweaking it, shifting gears for a second, why is there a category of ugly? I mean, what is ugly and where did it come from? Have you ever thought about that? Ugly, I would suggest to you, is, uh, is, is, is in part put here on this earth to serve as a metaphor of sin. It provides us a picture. In other words, we, we don't really understand how ugly sin is 
and, 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 and yet we understand how ugly ugly is. And, and, and yet what we can do is God provides us a metaphor. You know, he goes, God says, I, I want to give you a category that you can better understand um, what I see. I, I, I want you to understand how ugly I see sin as. And to, and to give you that category, I'm going to give to you a category of ugly. In fact, ugly isn't even a created thing. Everything God made is beautiful. Everything God made is good. Everything God made is true. And so where does like ugly come? Ugly is not a thing. Beauty is a thing. And ugly is a lack of beauty. That has, that has entered into this world because of sin. It is sin that creates ugly. It is sin that mars us and us being made in the image of God. And, 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 and ugly becomes a category for us to understand not just what sin has done to us, but it becomes a category for us to understand how God sees us in our sin. But he loves us. He loves us. He loves the unlovely. He loves the ugly. I hope I'm not weirding you out by, by this. I mean, so don't, like this afternoon, don't go, you know, I love you just like God loves you. And that being a subtle hint to saying, you ugly. You know, I, I, so that means, don't go there, all right? God's love is a wonderful, true reality. But God's love is not based upon our desirability. But, but it is rooted in himself, in that which he deliberately desires the highest good of that which is the object of his love. It is, not, it is not the desirability of the object, but the desirability internal to himself that is committed to producing, creating beauty and loveliness out of that which was once not so beautiful and lovely. God loves us, and our highest good is, in fact, our beautification. But it doesn't start with our beautification. It starts with his commitment to love. Th- second subpoint under considering love. So love is not based upon attraction. It's based upon commitment. Love is, is not rooted in need, but it is rooted in an abundance God doesn't love us in order to fill up his need. God does not have an empty love cup. In order to fill that cup, he had to create you and I to fill that cup up. Now, I understand. I, I get this. We, 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 we feel needy. And, 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 and yet what I'm saying is that how we do love is, uh, at the very best, it, it gets diluted. When I say I love you, there's, there's always a, a tinge of that uh, that says I love you so as much as you continue to meet my needs. 
And if you don't meet my needs, you're out. What happened to your love? It's gone. It's gone because, because it ebbs and flows rooted in, uh, in my own deprivation, my own need. In fact, if we examine our notions of love, how we do uh, horizontal love, uh, we will discover that a lot of what we call love is really a quest to use others to meet our needs. Now, we were made by God to love and to be loved, even on a horizontal level, and that's a wonderful thing. But, but we must always be careful. We must always be aware of how pervasive the desire is to be loved, how that colors how we love we can easily, under the notion of love, uh, become controlling and petty and manipulative and, and identify it as love, which is really rooted more in desires to receive love rather than to, to, to give love. I, I, I get this. We are, we are creatures and on top of that, we are sinful creatures. And, and, but what I'm trying to impress upon us is the, uh, how magnanimous God's love is. God was never lonely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why the Trinity is so beautiful. They lived in a perfect relationship of love. It wasn't that the three of them had a deprivation of love and they said, we've got to create some creatures to fill up our empty love cup. No, out of the overflow and out of the abundance of the love that the Father had for the Son, the Son had for the Father, that the Father and the Son had for the Spirit, and that the Spirit had for the Father and the Son. Out of that overflow, out of that abundance, you and I were made to be recipients of this love. Not a love rooted in need, but a love or a rooted in abundance. Third, love is not oriented by variables, uh, but in fact, it is love that is driven by an agenda. God's love is not on again, off again. I, I remember I remember in the 60s and the 70s, uh, I don't know how many times they were, they were married and then not married, then married and then not married, but you, you remember the relationship between Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, it's like, these are like weird categories of like, are, do these guys love each other or not? You know, uh, I mean, they did this week, but maybe not next week. But this is not how God rolls in terms of how he loves. He, this is not he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Uh, no, God's love does not, is not affected by such v- variables. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't ebb and flow. It's not circumstantially driven. Uh, God's love has, nevertheless, a wonderful, powerful goal. While he finds us unlovely, ugly, marred by sin, this is not his final assessment of us. God gets the last word on our loveliness. 
God takes those whom he loves, who he finds in our unlovely state, and he transforms us into something lovely. And there's a name and a face to that image in which he transforms us. All who belong to Jesus, he is now identified as our older brother, if you would. And we are now being transformed into that same image. We are now being transformed into the image of God's son, Jesus. The one whom God says, this is my well-loved son. God speaks that same word over all who now belong to Jesus. These are now my well-loved children. And his love is what is at the root of his agenda uh, to shape even, even his hand of discipline. We read that this week, perhaps, in Deuteronomy. Those whom he loves, he disciplines. And the, the New Testament writer in Hebrews picks that same word up. So that, so that when, when God runs us through experiences that are hard and difficult and overwhelming and shocking, it is not because he's out to get us. It, it's, uh, it's because he is committed to producing beauty and loveliness in us by shaping us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. See, I, think, I don't think God loves me no more. Why do you say that? Well, look at all the hardships I'm going through. See, you see how we define love differently than God does? The hardships that you're walking through right now is, is not an indication of God's inattentiveness. It's not an indication that his love has packed up and moved out. In fact, it is, it is, it is an indication of his deep abiding love to create beauty of us. So God's love, as we consider God's love, God's love is not based upon attraction. It's based upon uh, commitment. Uh, he, 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 God's love is not rooted in um, uh, uh, need, but it is rooted out of abundance. God's love is not oriented by variables, uh, but it is driven by an agenda. Just a few words about then how do we cultivate this kind of love in our lives, a love that's more like God's kind of love and a, and a love that's less influenced by the world's descriptions and definitions of love. I mean, the first question you would ask is, Joe, that's a, that's a pretty tall order there. I mean, God's love is not based upon attraction but commitment. God's love is not rooted in need but in abundance. God's love is not oriented by variables but, by, but, but driven by an agenda. So, so lo- Joe, you, you talk a big talk how perfectly do you love like this? Well, no one run and talk to Diane immediately after the service. No, I don't perfectly love like this. But what I'm trying to say, help me to figure out a better way of saying it perhaps, while I'm not standing here and boasting that I perfectly love like this, I do want to stand here and say that this is how God perfectly loves me. This is how God perfectly loves you. (laughs) He sees you. He sees your stuff. He sees your sin. 
This doesn't have to be a dating relationship where you're hiding a secret from God because if he knew that secret, he would dump you like a bad habit. No, God sees your stuff. And when he speaks that you are my well-loved child, that's not because you've successfully hidden from him or hidden something from him. Because he's, he never has loved you based upon your desirability. He's based, he's loved you because he has a desire to determine to love you perfectly. I don't love perfectly based, based in abundance. I, 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 I scratch your back because I want you to scratch my back. This is more of a legal quid pro quo arrangement. Than, uh, this is just how, how it... Uh, but God loves me. God loves us. Not for how we enhance him or beautify him. But he loves us because he's got more beauty than he knows what to do with. And he's willing to share it with people like us. This is amazing, and, and this is the starting point. Not that we say, well, boy, I'm going to have to get my act together and start loving a little bit better this week, or God's not going to love me no more. No, no, God loves me in my unloveliness, and the starting point, the game changer, is I must, we must know exactly how perfectly we are loved in spite of our imperfections. In Christ, we are the beloved You and I have been joined to Jesus through faith, and we are loved with as much love as the Father loves his Son. The heart of the universe is a father who loves his son in the joy and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And to be a Christian means that we have been brought up into the middle of that love fest. We are loved as the members of the Trinity love each other. Christ has come to pull this one off. He has taken on flesh. He's lived a perfect life. He himself is the, was the boots on the ground, the embodiment of this is what a beautiful life consists of. This is, this is love and this is beauty displayed for us in perfect righteousness and holiness. And this love and beauty was culminated in that our dear Savior was hung on a cross, shed his blood, suffocated, suffered, died as an extension of his love for us, as an extension of his Father's love for us. And even now, he's not stopped loving us. Don't get me to sing George Jones at this point, but, but he's not stopped loving us. He has been raised from the dead, and he's at the Father's right hand. We're an expression of his continuing abiding love for us is that he is ever naming our name before the Father. And he will be back for us when he gets his beautiful place ready for us, and we will be his beautiful bride because he's created beauty in us. 
So how do we cultivate a love like this in our lives? How do we love others the way God loves us? Well, first of all, we just simply have to set and soak. We have to discover and delight in His love. But, but to the extent that we've sit, sat and soaked and we've discovered and delighted in His love for us, His love for us won't leave us in the place of sitting and soaking. His love will transform us. We must discover and delight in His love until it replaces our puny conceptions of love, until we reflect the very love with which we have been loved. He finds us in an unlovely state, marred by sin. And you and I need to delight in that until we know how to look at other people who have been marred by sin as well. And we know how to delight and to love them well. Because that's the same kind of way that we've been loved. We, we, we need to discover that his love for us is not because he wishes to use us uh, out of some sort of need and manipulate us, but, but his love for us is an overflow uh, of his own fullness. And as you and I have our empty love cups filled by our God and creator himself, then out of the overflow, you and I can be instruments of love toward others, uh, that we don't use people, uh, but we serve people because we've been filled to the brim with the very love of God. And God's love for us is not contingent upon the variables of circumstances of life. It's not on again, off again, but it is driven by an agenda. And so we too, just as we've been loved while we were unlovely, and God is now loving us with a kind of love that will beautify us, we too love others with a kind of love that while we find them marred by sin, our love for them will not will strive with every fiber of our own being to not leave them in that state of marring by sin, but that we will strive to point them to the God who loves them and the God who transforms them, that you and I would be instruments of that transformational love into the lives of others. So thank you, Father. Thank you that when you tell us in your word that you are love, you don't, you don't simply do love, it's a part of your very DNA. It's the essence of your being. You are love. And everything you do is now colored by your love. Thank you that you love us in your Son. And Father, may our hearts leap and rejoice. May our hearts be full and may our lives be altered because in your Son, you love us. We thank you for that love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, let's stand and sing this song together.